located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today David Steiner. He's the director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. He was dean of education at Hunter College before that. He served as commissioner of education for the state of New York as well. He is with us today to explain exactly what needs to happen in public schooling in America today. It's a very small, small request out of you. David, welcome. Welcome to be here and uh, delighted to join you, Mark. Uh, the answer to your question is that uh, we just have to teach better and teach better materials better. Uh, it really isn't very complicated. We underteach American children, um, largely underprivileged children the most, but we actually underteach almost all of our kids in the United States. Uh, and that has very deep historical as well as economic, social, and political roots. You, you, of course, the details are more complicated. Yeah, I, you know, David, I actually never heard that term under teaching. Is is that something of a of a technical term in education studies and research? No, I've largely made it up. Um, but I'm it's a good one. Not the first person to uh, to think this way. Uh, one only has to go back to. Uh, Hofstetter and uh, his famous book, uh, Richard Hofstetter, Anti-Intellectualism in America. Um, and I believe I'm quoting here accurately when he wrote, uh, I believe ours is the only education system in the world, uh, vital segments of which have fallen into the hands of people who joyfully and militantly proclaim their hostility to intellect <laughs> and their eagerness to identify with children who show the least intellectual promise. <laughs> so uh, the, the anti-intellectualism in America makes it very difficult to put academic performance at the top of anyone's list. Yeah, yeah. well, let me get back to the administrative issue. I, I mentioned you and I have known each other for, for a long time. Uh, what, what does the institute that you head do? When did it start? If you want to give us a little bit about the genesis of that, and, and what does it do? Sure. Well, when I was commissioner of education in New York State, responsible for about three million school kids, about a million university children, uh, I realized that every day was triage. I was just worrying about the emergencies. And very frankly, in those years, I probably looked at research for about 30 minutes in a year. I just didn't have time because the research papers were dense. Uh, they were full of R squares and confidence coefficients, and they said very little about the real world. Um, and how things should or shouldn't be implemented in order to actually gain the advantages that these papers eloquently or less eloquently put out. And so I said to myself, you know, there's a big gap here. We need to be able to provide state commissioners, big city superintendents, folks who are really responsible for education with actionable information, with really good research-based policy recommendations. And so six and a half years ago or so, 
uh, coming down from New York. Uh, I came to Johns Hopkins to create this institute uh, with my colleague, Ashley Berner, uh, basically to fill that huge void, to provide not just commissioners and city directors, but also nonprofits, mayor's offices, uh, congressional offices, federal government with actionable policy that was based with good research. And that's what we've been doing. Uh, we advise multiple states, multiple districts. We've actually created tools where we couldn't find ones. Well, uh, well, well David, important. give me an example of one project or product of the Institute. Sure. I'll do one of each. So we were invited by the governor uh, and the State Commissioner of Education of Rhode Island uh, to come into Providence to do a really deep analysis of what was going on in the school district. And we brought our whole team. We were in the schools. We interviewed everyone from the city council to the school board to principals to parents. We looked at classrooms. We were in schools. And the report we wrote uh, was just empirical, um, uh, but it was devastating. And the picture we had to paint was so urgent in terms of necessary reforms that the state took over the school district. Hmm. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, uh, Washington Post all had editorials on our research. Um, in that instance, therefore, we came in, we researched the situation, we wrote the report, and we got practical political change. Yeah. In terms of tools, um, we have found, for example, that the research said that there was a huge achievement gap in reading that had been poorly diagnosed. In other words, what was causing it? Uh, the assumption was that poor children were just worse at a whole bunch of skills, like find the main idea in the passage. Well, that turned out to be myth, just pure myth. The reason why p by poorer students are just less able to understand a text and indeed less able to find the main idea is that they've been more poorly educated as to the world, as to the human condition. They simply don't know what the passage is about. Hmm. And so they can stare at it for 20 years and never find the main idea. Whereas more affluent students who've spent time reading more broadly, more deeply, you know, being taken by their parents to museums, to foreign countries, yeah. they understood what the background knowledge was. And so they had no trouble finding main ideas. So what did we do? We produced knowledge maps. We analyzed curriculum in ELA and social studies that actually for the first time lays out what these curriculum do and more importantly don't do in terms of educating children about crucial elements of science, the arts, geography, history, civics, um, literature, and so forth and so on. Uh, and this has led to many districts actually replacing very bad curriculum with much better ones. Uh well, first of all, I would note a, 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 a sore deficiency in your work. You, you don't do enough theory. Isn't that a big problem? <laughs> yeah, it, it is a huge <laughs> problem. Um, and, of course, we're, we're smiling as we say this. Um, I'm one of the few people, I believe, in this country who's actually read all of Dewey's published work. I did it for my doctoral dissertation. Mm. Uh, Lewis Mumford said reading John Dewey is like taking a subway ride to infinity. <laughs> um, I think that... It, Frankly, uh, schools of education have 
really majored in theory to the detriment of how to help kids, you know, in the South Bronx actually learn how to read. Um, That's a a generalization, but it is true that uh, we do far less clinical preparation of teachers and far more textbook reading than all of our leading competitor peer countries. This is where medicine was, Mark, in, in the end of the 19th century. I mean, you trained surgeons with textbooks at that point. And my own university, Johns Hopkins, really started the revolution of shifting uh, medical education to a fundamentally clinical basis. We have to do the same in education. We Hmm. have to build a full year of clinical residency, and then whatever coursework we do should be around the lived experience of teaching, not in isolation from it. In general, theory, frankly, has done very little to improve the education of children. Are the decision makers, uh, you know, the the state secretaries of education or or Mm -hmm. people in the governor's office, are they shifting in the same way? And and maybe I should ask, are you are you getting more more requests for your work than mm-hmm. you can handle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we began with two people. As I speak to you, we're sixteen. Mm. Uh, that tells its own story. Uh, and we're sixteen core team members. We also now bring in expert help from across the country and indeed abroad. So there's more work than we can possibly manage, which is good news. On the other hand, the consumers of that work are very geographically specific. There are states that gobble it up. There are districts that can't get enough of good good research-based practical advice and good tools that stands up critical data. There are states, frankly, that still don't want to know. There are districts that don't want to know. There are districts where, you know, we've done it this way for 20 years. If it's good enough for one generation, it's good enough for another. As long as adult employment is protected, right, that's that's the main goal here. Don't disturb us. Hmm. Um, And so it's very frustrating because it all depends on two things. One, the caliber of the leadership. Um, and two, whether that leader, that educational leader, can build powerful political alliances, right, with the mm-hmm. governor, with the state legislature, with the business community. And it's very rare that that can happen and be sustained. Uh, it did happen in Massachusetts. It happened to some degree in Louisiana more recently. But it is not the rule. It is one of the problems that, you know, a governor comes in, he, let, let's say he... He follows this approach. The problem is by the time you get it all together, by the time you implement it, by the time it gets into the, you train the teachers, you get it into the classroom, uh, years have gone by and that governor isn't around anymore. Not only is the governor not around, the state superintendent is likely not around, right? The, the old days when the state superintendent's job was essentially regulatory and bureaucratic and no one knew her or his name, they stayed for years. Hmm. Now, um, you know, uh, in New York, for example, my successor, John King, was there for three years, um, went on to be U.S. Secretary of Education. Two to three years is typical. 
um, whereas 10 years would have been more typical a generation ago. So it's that's where it starts. But then it's all the way down to the district and school level. District superintendents come in often on high salaries. They feel they have to justify their existence by bringing in a whole set of reforms their predecessors didn't. And then they move on right before those reforms have any chance of taking root. Um, the same thing, of course, with principals, right? Principal turnover is, is a notorious problem, especially in urban schools. So we, we have this churn, which is, of course, devastating for any sustained reform. And we're also impatient, right? As a country, we, we want the quick fix. So we say, well, we're going to bring in a lot of uh, we're going to bring in a beautiful new math curriculum. Right. Well, we want the results to show up the end of that year. Right. But just imagine. Right. On average, as a nation, we give teachers one day and a breakfast of professional development on a new curriculum. One day and a breakfast. On average, they've been teaching nationwide over a decade. I ask your listeners, would you change what you've been doing for 10 years based on a few hours, right? It it isn't going to happen. And then we say to them, oh, you know, you've had a year. Why don't I see dramatic changes? So this impatience combined with, you know, churn at the the leadership level is a a real one-two punch on any chances of sustained reform. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You know, the last big national reform was Common Core. About about 10, 11 years ago, it it, it was uh, being instituted in in all the states. Uh, And there's been recent... Some recent discussion, a book came out recently about uh, common. what happened with Common Core. Now we're 10 years yep. past it. Uh, do, you, do you have a take? Do, do, you, do you have an interpretation of, of what happened back then, what, what the legacy will be? Yes. I mean, first of all, it's important to understand that Common Core was not a curriculum. Mm-hmm. It was not about what materials will you actually teach. It was a list of desired skills at the end of each year. And so, first of all, people got very confused. They thought somehow the feds had imposed a national curriculum. I wish, right, if it had been been a good one, but it will never happen. Um, No, they didn't. First of all, the feds didn't actually produce the Common Core. But be that as it may, first of all, Common Core was just skills. Secondly, um, it didn't come with curriculum, which is the reason why, as commissioner, I launched something called Engage New York, which was the first online high-quality free curriculum in math and ELA. It's now been downloaded several hundred million times across the country. But quite apart from what I was able to do and my colleagues were able to do, in the vast majority of cases, teachers you know, were using curriculum that simply was rubber-stamped by publishers as common core ready. 
mm-hmm. you know, with a few cosmetic changes. So often the materials being used didn't change. Well, if the materials didn't change, then obviously the outcomes were not going to change greatly. And thirdly, um, the, there are a lot of arguments as to whether it was implemented in an intelligent way. But what did happen was that the, the unions um, who initially were in favor, people forget this, there was union support for the Common Core Standards. But what was added to them was teacher accountability based on the tests, right, through which we would assess the Common Core success. Mm-hmm. Well, the teachers' unions hated that accountability. Um, so did middle-class parents whose children were far more interested in the AP exams than they were in these endless state tests, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there was common cause made between middle-class parents and the teachers' unions, really about the, the tests, but with the tests went Common Core. And when you combine that with, with conservative opposition to anything that sort of smelt of central authority mm-hmm. or anything that wasn't created in my backyard, right? So between the, the, the sort of more left-leaning unions, the more right-leaning Tea Party opposition to anything from Washington, it sunk the whole thing. Hmm. The only legacy, and it's not a trivial one, is is that at least we do have a set of skills. Um, some of them one could quibble over, by the way, um, and we could talk about that. But it, at least we have a set of skills uh, against which we can do some thermometer reading, right? Yeah. Some way of saying uh, across the United States, how are we doing? Um, you know, it's, it's common core could be thought of as like a thermometer, right? You don't want a doctor not to have a thermometer. Hmm. Um, and the thermometer has to have a scale, and those are the assessments. Um, so it, to that degree, it was important. It said we expect something from our children at every grade level. Hmm. And that has stuck, even as the, uh, the states that have uh, all rebelled against common core have often just renamed it and changed 5% of it. Mm-hmm. So... I would I would say that the the jury is still out. The long term impact is hard to evaluate. It's early promise, sure, because of a mixture of lack of good materials and political opposition. We didn't get the the injection of higher quality in a, in the short run that we wanted. That's fair, yeah. but it its longer term impact is probably more subtle. L- let me insert a quick question, and then we'll then we'll continue on this tour. Just quickly. Uh, your institute would certainly be open to doing evaluations, doing projects with private schools, right? Religious schools. Absolutely. We, okay. One of the okay. tools we have is a, is a culture survey of schools, which actually we're doing in many, many Catholic dioceses. Okay. Um, we're, we're also in Muslim uh, uh, schools. We're talking to Jewish schools. Absolutely. We work with multiple um, private school organizations. Okay. Uh, all right. Now, you mentioned the skills. Common Core gives yeah. us a pretty, pretty much agreed upon set, set of skills. Those aren't, those aren't controversial. But when you started, you mentioned how important it was, especially in these, these inner city schools where we see the low, uh, the low income, low performers, how important it is, the background knowledge, just the general right. sense of the world that they bring to bear uh, upon this. And there... The knowledge factor, maybe maybe I'll put it that way, yeah. is there is part of this move toward, you know, better materials. 
Is this part of a movement in education today around maybe a, a somewhat nebulous idea of focusing more on knowledge, that we've got it to is. build it the is. old cultural literacy argument? Yeah, yeah. If you'd asked me this five years ago, I'd be more pessimistic. And I am not known as, you know, uh, being Pollyanna-ish. Um, but I would say that the lifetime work of Edie Hirsch, uh, of others who've worked with him, including you and I, um, and many others, is finally bearing fruit. And the evidence is, is this. Uh, I'm advising a group of 13 states supported by the Council of Chief State School Officers, CCSSO, all 13 of them are committed to moving uh, their districts to use high-quality, high-content curriculum. Hmm. That's almost a quarter of all American school children. That is not a trivial number of students. And it began with eight states. Now it's 13. I hope we will add states over time. I think this argument is now it's moved from fringe and esoteric to mainstream. It doesn't mean that that, uh, you know, that all our 13,700 school districts are teaching high quality with high quality materials. No, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, sadly, this is a huge country and these kind of changes take a long time. But the argument is certainly being made across the United States. It's being made by the major foundations uh, who are supporting this work. It is supported by most of the reform-minded state superintendents. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there really is here uh, the germs of a movement, and it is crucial. Uh, I, just to give you one example of how important this is, if you're in a, a min minority-majority school, 40% um, of, of you will never see grade-level material. Never. Mm -hmm in your whole schooling, right? So you're a kid, uh, often you're a black kid uh, because black kids still uh, in the United States are most likely to be in black majority schools, mm -hmm. more so by the way than when Brown versus Board was passed. We are more segregated than we hmm. were in the 1950s. Um, they are, you know, 40% of them will never see grade level material because their teachers don't think they can master it. Yeah. Um, and so each teacher reach each year, the teachers reach further back, do more remediation and lock them even further back into, you know, backward learning. And the wrong way to go. Well, no, I don't say the wrong way again, where we're talking about about uh, uh, degrees of emphasis. Right. But the wrong way to go would be to take that fourth grade student and try to improve the reading comprehension scores by doing reading comprehension skills exercises, you know, find the main idea. Whereas Absolutely. if you foregrounded interesting content, those, right. those skills would sort of come through the process of absorbing the content, talking about the content, writing about That's the right. actual subject matter. That's right. The problem has been we're a wonderfully heterogeneous society. That's our great glory. The great sort of sacrifice that has come with that is we haven't been able to agree on what to teach. Mm -hmm. And so instead of agreeing on content, we try to teach skills. The middle class, upper middle class, upper class, they get the content at home. They get the content, you know, in privileged schools yeah. who know they get the content at home. The underprivileged kids get drilled on skills, never learn the content, and then everyone's surprised when the drilling doesn't work. Right. Right. That, that is the tragedy. Um, and, uh, you know, it is the civil war in Boston, the war between the states and D.C. and the war of northern aggression in Georgia. But 
be that as it may, you could still have good history curriculum in all three states, right? all three places. When you were dean at Hunter, which I believe supplies more teachers to New York City than does any other school, uh, did you make big changes in the training of teachers? And did, did, it, did, did you go, were you already going 10 years ago in the direction of building more, more knowledge instruction? We did make big changes. We videotaped all of our student teachers in their clinical training. We were one of the first in the nation to establish a large residency program where we trained teachers for a whole year, not just for a semester. Uh, we founded together with leaders of top charter schools, uh, a new school of education is now called Relay School of Edu Relay Graduate School of Education, which is the fastest growing ed school in the country, which focuses on clinical training. We did not, and I regret this, um, we did not focus enough on the privileging of content. Uh, we were focused on the fact that our teachers just didn't have the real world skills themselves mm -hmm. to teach effectively. Um, they couldn't communicate effectively with their children. Uh, we saw that in videotape after videotape. Uh, the, the focus on content really came for me when I became Commissioner of Education in New York and just was in classrooms. I'll never forget being in a Buffalo High School in an 11th grade class on Hamlet. Now, of course, it was for my benefit because I grew up in England, so they thought they'd show off a Shakespeare class. <laughs> well, for 50 minutes, the children were asked to list you know, members of their family with whom they had deep and powerful disagreements um, and whether they could ever see that escalating into into violence. I mean, it was <laughs> it was unspeakable. And I, I was I was with my deputy John King, um, and he he was just as horrified as I was. We were so upset that on the way back to Albany, uh, we actually began an inquiry about the Buffalo schools, and we found that the absentee rates of the teachers and principals were tragically high. Hmm. Um, I mean, it was, it was, we took the lid off a, a really painful situation, but that class I'll never forget. Now, the, the inability to agree upon what should be taught, uh, I've, I've come across, yeah. this, across this before when I've been involved in projects and for English literary uh, arts standards and Boy, when the idea of a reading list comes up, everyone in the room gets so... I don't get nervous, but everyone else mm -hmm. gets so nervous. And the beginning argument is, well, you're not going to get a good reading list in English that will have sufficient diversity because of simply mm -hmm. the, the, the historical nature of, of, mm -hmm. of English literature. Uh, but I said, well, what about in, in American literature? We could certainly have a lot of African-American literature. We could have a lot of novels. I mean, we're, we've got a more recent history here, a lot of novels, uh, poems by women, people of color. And what I've sensed is it's deeper than the diversity argument. There's something about anything that smacks of prescriptiveness. Is, is this correct? Yes. Yes, this goes very deep. We've taught that the only authentic curriculum is the one I make up myself as a teacher for my unique students. Now, think about that for a moment. It means that the quality of your education, of your child's education, is completely subject to good luck or bad luck, first of all. 95% of American teachers every week create their own DJ playlist of curriculum 
by pulling materials off the Internet. Google Teachers Pay Teachers, Pinterest, mix it with their local district curriculum in a unique sort of witch's brew because they, they've been taught to do this at the ed school, which has taught them this very thing, that the only authentic curriculum is the one you make for yourself. This is like Meryl Streep saying, I won't act in a movie because I didn't write the script. It's absurd, right? Meryl Streep wants the best possible movies, right? She, she wants the best possible movie script uh, to act because she's an actress, not a scriptwriter. Teachers are teachers, not curriculum designers. So we've got to break away from this, it's mine, leave me alone. That, that's the first problem. And then the second problem is, you know, we still have over 13,000 school districts uh, in this country, each one of whom wants to do their own thing, right? To, to, partly to justify their existence, right? We have still one, one school school boards, one school school districts, Long <laughs> Island, Long Island, which is, you know, it's not tiny, but it's not exactly huge, has 112 school districts. Hmm. 112. Why? Because every neighborhood, every zip code, right, wants to fund its own school through its real estate taxes. It doesn't want that money going into your child's school. You know, goodness forbid. Hmm. So Wyandanche and Hempstead and Roosevelt, the three largely African-American Long Island school districts are surrounded by affluent white districts that spend twice to three times what they do per child, hmm. right? Because they can afford to. So, you know, this is this is in, an incredible situation um, across the country where localism is everything, and it comes to roost at the curriculum level. Hmm. Uh, last question, David. Uh, you mentioned the ed schools a moment ago. Yep. Uh, yep. Are the ed schools starting to pay attention to the kind of knowledge-oriented focus and, and your work? Your work. Are, yep. are, are they drawing on your products? Very slowly. Um, I am working with states. I just finished a project with Nebraska on putting curriculum literacy in as a requirement for ed schools, meaning that teachers to be should be pre-taught to tell the difference between a terrible curriculum and a good one, should be taught how to remediate a bad curriculum, right? And to really teach with good materials. Um, so that's just starting. There is, as far as I know, in the United States, only one course so far at the University of Virginia on curriculum literacy. Hmm. Uh, and it's a term I believe I coined. So, you know, this is early, early days. Um, teacher prep is one of the hardest things to change. Um, almost half of America's ed schools still teach the wrong pseudoscience of learning to read. About 48% of, of schools of education do not teach the science of reading even though we've had this established since the reading panel, right, decades ago. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is one of the real problems. I have been a critic of ed schools, you know, having been a dean for eight years. I saw it from the inside. Art Levine, who was my peer at Teachers College Columbia, president there, wrote a scathing critique of ed schools when he stepped down from being president uh, of Teachers College. I mean, it, it is too easy to beat up on them. The key is to change them. Yeah. 
Um, but the problem is they're politically protected. They, the presidents of colleges want them as enrollment factories. It is very hard. And, and the profs are tenured. Yes. Why change? Um, <laughs> the senior senior ones are. Right. Um, you know, I think that that. But I think above all else, what what has to change in this country is fundamentally a view that uh, you know academic learning means exposure to rich and rigorous content yeah. uh, for all children, not just white children in the right zip codes. Right. Uh, David Steiner, Director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.